Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions, and also brought to you by Policy Pack Software, now part of Networks, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp. Happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. In my opinion, the biggest story over the last week or so is that there was a pretty major problem linked to the May Windows updates, at least on domain controllers. Um, which obviously is the sweetest nut for cyber attacks. Microsoft stated that, quote, after installing updates released May 10th, 2022 on your domain controllers, you might see authentication failures on the server or client for services, such as network policy server or NPS, routing and remote access service, which is RRAS, RADIUS, Extensible Authentication Protocol, EAP, and Protected Extensible Authentication Protocol, PEAP. They go on to state an issue has been found related to how the mapping of certificates to machine accounts is being handled by the domain controller, end quote. The problems are linked to security updates addressing CVE-2022-26931 and CVE-2022-26923, which are two elevations of privilege vulnerabilities in Windows Kerberos and Active Directory domain services. So this puts people in a tough spot because obviously those vulnerabilities, you want those to be patched. You don't want your domain controllers left vulnerable, but now potentially patching your domain controllers for these vulnerabilities could cause problems. And not only just for authentication on clients or servers, Ryan Rees on Twitter gave a tip stating, if you manage an active directory, please do me a small favor. Make sure the altsec ID attribute on the KRBTGT account is not populated prior to deploying the May updates to your domain controllers. He states that there's a bug and trust me, you don't want to find it. And he says this is not security related, it's just a crash. So it's looking like there may be other issues not just related to this patch harming authentication, but also potentially causing crashes too. At least if you don't have the configuration in your environment in a certain way. Microsoft says that the May 2022 updates automatically set the strong certificate binding enforcement registry key which changes the enforcement mode of the Kerberos Distribution Center to compatibility mode. However, a Windows administrator told BleepingComputer.com that the only way to get some of their users to log in with this update was to disable the strong certificate binding enforcement key by setting it to zero. Surprisingly, or at least surprisingly to me, at the time of this episode, this issue has been out there for several days, 
and it appears that Microsoft hasn't had any really great update over the last few days. This is a pretty major problem. People in the community have pointed to a potential registry setting, but then at the same time, Microsoft's own troubleshooting and their documentation around this does mention a registry setting, but they had said that it wasn't recommended. So right now, administrators seem to be kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Which is the lesser of two evils? Run into authentication issues and potentially crashes by patching the vulnerabilities or leave yourself vulnerable. Hopefully Microsoft provides some sort of update to its customers and hopefully a new patch is imminent. Though there's nothing to suggest that right now, which is worrying. In some better news, according to TechCrunch.com, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google have all pledged millions of dollars to bolster the security of open source software. If you follow the podcast, several years ago, I covered a story about the European Commission launching a bug bounty program for some open source software. And some had kind of derided it, saying that the bounties being offered were too small to attract most serious players but it has turned out to be quite useful. And I know that the VLC executives had actually highlighted how useful that has been and at discovering vulnerabilities. But now having these large private companies also throwing some of their weight behind it and behind efforts for open source software can only help. TechCrunch said that during last week's meeting, companies including Amazon, Ericsson, Google, Intel, Microsoft, and VMware pledged a collective $30 million to fund a 10-point plan that aims to boost the security of open source software. It said the ultimate goal is to find and fix vulnerabilities like Log4Shell faster in an effort to better protect the U.S. from malicious cyber attacks that exploit insecure software platforms and devices. ZDNet have reported that NVIDIA have released on GitHub the source code for its GPU kernel modules for Linux. The GPU company admitted its driver was not ready to be upstreamed into the Linux kernel, but it would work on it with Red Hat, SUSE, and others. They stated this is only the kernel part. A big part of modern graphics driver are to be found in the firmware and user space components, and those are still closed source but it does mean that they have an NVIDIA kernel driver now that will start being able to consume the GPL-only APIs in the Linux kernel. Although this initial release doesn't consume any APIs the old driver wasn't already using. Although they state that this initial release doesn't consume any APIs that the old driver wasn't already using. So for those who have been holding out for open source GPU kernel modules for Linux from NVIDIA, happy days. In less joyous NVIDIA news, Ars Technica have reported that the company has agreed to pay a $5.5 million fine to the United States Securities and Exchange Commission to settle charges that have failed to disclose how many of its GPUs were being sold for cryptocurrency mining. It reads like they reported increased sales several years ago, but did not point out that this was due to the popularity of their graphics cards amongst crypto miners. 
Nvidia did disclose how cryptocurrency mining was affecting other segments of its business. You know, the company made and sold GPUs marketed exclusively to cryptocurrency miners. And this created an impression that Nvidia was being transparent about the impact of cryptocurrency mining on its overall business, even though having those products didn't stop people from buying the regular GeForce gaming GPUs to use for cryptocurrency mining. Nvidia has not admitted fault, but has agreed to a cease and desist order and to pay $5.5 million in fines. In recent years, I've reported on some NVIDIA GPUs that were being throttled specifically to deter crypto miners from using them, but then also I covered stories that suggested that the restrictions placed on those GPUs were easily bypassed. So NVIDIA do seem to have a little bit of a catch-22 situation going on with miners. I'm sure they were great for business, but they could be bad in the long run, particularly now that crypto seems to be in a major downward spiral with Bitcoin down to about $29,000 for a coin at the time of this recording. Threadpost.com reports that Intel has disclosed a memory bug impacting microprocessor firmware used in hundreds of products. According to an advisory issued by Intel, the bug is firmware-based and rated as high-risk with a severity score of 7 out of 10. The vulnerability resides inside some of the Intel Optane SSD and Intel Optane data center products, the impact of which allows privilege escalation, denial of service, or information disclosure. The vulnerability affects so many products that it would take a long time to call out each one on the podcast. Updates have been released by Intel, so I'll share a link to the article that contains a list of the products and a link to those patches. And you can find that at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode, which is episode 230. Betanews.com reports that Microsoft Teams is now available in the Microsoft Store. I'll be honest, I didn't know it wasn't available in the store since I get it with my overall Office 365 installed via the Office portal. So when I read this, I thought, oh, you know, this would make sense since Windows 11 now provides Teams within it for personal use. You know, I figured they'll just drive people to the store in order to reinstall it or maybe to install it on other non-Windows 11 devices, but no. This particular Teams in the store is not the personal use version of Teams. They state, if you are a Windows 10 user, you'll be able to download and access the Teams app for personal or work and school accounts from the store. And if you're a Windows 11 user, you can only download the Teams app for work and school accounts from the store. So to download the Teams app for personal use on Windows 11, you have to go to the Microsoft site instead, which is a little bit I don't know, disjointed and kind of confusing. I'm not sure why they're doing that. Also Microsoft Teams related, but Microsoft Teams secondary ringer is now generally available on Windows 365. Secondary ringer is a voice calling feature that allows Teams to signal an inbound call on multiple devices. Previously, only one sound output device was used to notify users of an incoming Teams call. So for example, If the default device was a headset, the user may miss incoming calls when not wearing the headset. Secondary Ringer allows teams to signal the arrival of an inbound call on two devices, which means you have two sound output devices of your choice 
to ring on when there is an incoming Teams call. They warn that secondary ringer will not work if you are not connected to more than one suitable device, if a device is not online, or if you remove your PC from a situation where the secondary ringer is unavailable. To get started, you need to have the Windows Desktop Client version 1.2.3004 and also enable the feature on Windows 365. So I alluded to this next story during Password Week, but Microsoft, Apple, and Google have all committed to support an approach to authentication that avoids passwords altogether and instead requires users to merely unlock their smartphones to sign into websites or online services. Krebs on Security reports that experts say the changes should help defeat many types of phishing attacks and ease the overall password burden on internet users, but caution that a true passwordless future may still be years away for most websites. Microsoft have announced that Microsoft Defender Vulnerability Management is now in public preview. Microsoft explains this is a single solution offering the full set of Microsoft's vulnerability management capabilities to help take your threat protection to the next level. They say in addition to all existing vulnerability management capabilities currently available, Defender Vulnerability Management will provide consolidated asset inventories, expanded coverage, and critical new capabilities including security baselines assessment, browser extensions assessment, digital certificates assessment, network shares assessment, blocking vulnerable applications, and vulnerability assessment for unmanaged endpoints. Microsoft Defender Vulnerability Management will be available in public preview as a standalone and as an add-on for Microsoft Defender for Endpoint Plan 2 customers. You can sign up today for the 120-day public preview. It's a kind of Microsoft heavy episode this week, but Microsoft also announced that Visual Studio 2022 version 17.2 is now available. This release brings continued improvements to the C-Sharp and .NET experiences, new Git performance and experiences, updates for C++ developers, and new Azure tools for local development and deployment. They also said they've addressed over 400 feedback items in this release. And again, sticking with Microsoft, but later this month, Microsoft Access users will be able to migrate their data into Power Apps and Dataverse. Customers who have the current or monthly channel for Microsoft 365 and Office can update their Microsoft Access to make use of the Dataverse connector and migration tool. The Access migration tool and connector provided within Access streamlines the process of migrating tables, relationships, and data with setup taking just a few minutes and migration handled automatically for you. It would be interesting to see if this is going to appeal to those diehards who are still using Microsoft Access, which, you know, I've worked for several organizations who are using Access pretty heavily. So they are out there. The awesome Rudy Ooms had warned this week on Twitter that for anyone who is still requiring quick assist to be installed the old way during autopilot, please remove it. Otherwise, you'll be staring at some stuck autopilot enrollments. And he links to a Reddit thread where several people are talking about quick assist. So best to heed the advice and remove it. (laughs) 
Damien DePortal on Twitter gave a heads up to those using the domain mirrors.jenkins.io in their Jenkins environments that you should expect enforced HTTPS and improved mirror selection starting the 19th of May, which at the time of this recording, surprise, <laughs> you've already got it by the time I probably have this posted. Recently, Microsoft and Citrix have announced they are working together to extend the Windows 365 experience with Citrix HDX high-end graphics technology, as well as support for a broader range of endpoint devices and peripherals, advanced security and policy controls, and third-party identity integrations. Now, with this initial announcement, it's pretty light on details, so it'll be interesting to see what it is they're going to pitch specifically to Windows 365 customers. Just kind of in my opinion, like if you're already familiar with Citrix products and maybe using Citrix Cloud, I'm not so sure you're going to be that swayed by Windows 365 because it's quite expensive. I think part of the appeal, like the initial pitch of Windows 365 was you don't have to know how to manage a VDI. Apparently VDI is very complex. Um, so organizations want something that a typical desktop administrator would be able to work with and Windows 365 offers that because it's relatively simple to provision and desktop administrators can just use Microsoft Endpoint Manager for managing provisioning those desktops for better or worse. But again, like if you're already familiar with Citrix, if you're looking at the price of Windows 365 and you already have the tooling and ability to manage those desktops for cheaper, then it's probably going to be a case that you'll either use Citrix or maybe Azure Virtual Desktop instead. That's just my opinion. Windows 365 certainly does have its use cases and its markets, but unless it's packaged properly, I'm not sure what the overall appeal will be with blending these technologies or integrating them. Now, I will say obviously Windows 365 has a lot of areas of weakness like application deployment is very slow with Microsoft Endpoint Manager. Whereas obviously with Citrix Cloud, if you've got the Citrix receiver on those Windows 365 machines, that would certainly improve management and delivery of those applications. But anyways, I'm rambling. Apparently they're going to probably drip feed more information about these announcements in the coming days. So hopefully next week there'll be more information to share. A quick note, as I saw shared by the awesome guy Leech, but a friendly reminder that Internet Explorer 11, the desktop application, will be retired on June 15th. Hopefully that does not come as a surprise to you. Rather interestingly this week, I saw that Apple have decided to push back their plan to have workers return to the office three days a week. Now, my assumption was that it was due to the workers not wanting it and starting to leave closer to the date that maybe Apple had said they had to return. But actually, in reading, it looks like they already returned to the office for two days a week. It was just going to be increased to three days a week. And in actuality, Apple are holding off because of a surge in COVID cases. But I also don't understand why you then still have people come in two days a week if there's a surge in COVID cases. So it is a very confusing article on Bloomberg.com. And <laughs> if I was working for Apple, I would be even more confused and frustrated by this. Kind of in that same business vein of news, 
Unfortunately, there have been some early warning signs of an impending recession, potentially global recession, with analysts suggesting it could start as soon as 2023. The warning signs have included some pretty major tech companies performing very poorly and even laying off many employees. Companies such as Cameo and Netflix have been cutting employees as an example. Another example, Amazon's chief financial officer announced during the company's earnings conference call on April 28th that Amazon has too many workers after hiring more as it braced for workers being sick due to the emergence of the Omicron variant. Carvana, another example, have laid off two and a half thousand employees. And all of this is off the back of a 40 year high in inflation in the United States with inflation in the US hitting about 8.6%. And just recently, the UK was projected to hit 9% inflation. For our line of work in particular, Crunchbase speculates that this sudden shock is likely related to what Amazon have kind of stated there themselves. You know, many organizations hired more workers to help during the pandemic and are now bringing the numbers more in line with pre-pandemic levels. So it's not all doom and gloom in our space though. Job prospects in the tech sector are still bright in the long term as it has never been more entangled with both personal and work life according to Crunchbase. And the number of tech jobs including web developers, software engineers and more is expected to continue growing in the next decade according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics. So hopefully that's true globally, not just the US. In a quick hit story, Google have signaled their intent to use 100% carbon-free energy in their data centers by 2030. This is pretty impressive as CNBC.com reports that currently, Google's data centers around the world use about twice as much electricity as the city of San Francisco. So Google definitely aiming high. Good luck, Google. So this next story is a bit of a cluster, but <laughs> I'll attempt it anyway. Uh, Cyberscoop.com reported that a Dallas-based nonprofit Catholic health system with more than 600 facilities across the U.S., Mexico, Chile, and Colombia has been hit by ransomware. Michigan-based McKenzie Health System began notifying customers this week that patients' personal data had been stolen from the company's network in a security incident that disrupted some of its IT systems in March. The company did not identify the attacker, but Avos Locker posted purported data related to the attack on a dark web leak site in April. The company's IT staff learned of unauthorized access in one of its regions, which the company refers to as sometime in early May. On further investigation, I found that the Sanilla County News states the hacking incident occurred on March 11th, and it was April 22nd that McKenzie identified files compromised, including data such as patient names, contact information, demographic information, date of birth, social security numbers, diagnosis and treatment information, prescription information, medical record numbers, provider names, dates of service, and health insurance information. So between various different articles on this, it seems like the timeline and the dates are a little bit different, but ballpark kind of March and April, it seems. And regardless, 
you hate to hear about health systems getting attacked, or at least I do. I wish the IT workers at McKenzie the best of luck with their efforts. And speaking of ransomware, Engadget reports that Lincoln College in the United States says it will close in the wake of a ransomware attack that took months to resolve. Now, while the impact of COVID-19 severely impacted activities such as recruitment and fundraising for the college, the cyber attack seems to have been the tipping point for the Illinois institution to go to business. The college has informed the Illinois Department of Higher Education and Higher Learning Commission that it will permanently close as of May 13th. NBC News notes this is the first U.S. college or university to shut down in part because of a ransomware attack. BleepyComputer.com has reported that a Chinese database administrator has been sentenced to seven years in prison for logging into corporate systems belonging to a Chinese real estate brokerage company and deleting the company's data. In June 2018, the administrator used his admin privileges and root account to access the company's financial system and delete all stored data from two database servers and two application servers. They reckon recovery cost about $30,000, but the indirect damages from the disruption of the firm's business were far more damaging. The company operates thousands of offices, employs over 120,000 brokers, and owns 51 subsidiaries, and its market value is estimated to be $6 billion. So I can only imagine how much they've estimated this has cost them. In an odd twist, the culprit had repeatedly informed his employer and supervisors about security gaps in their financial system, even sending emails to other administrators to raise his concerns. However, he was largely ignored as the leaders of his department never approved the security project he had proposed to run. The admin reportedly felt that his organizational proposals weren't valued and often entered arguments with his supervisors. Now, if that's his motivation, it seems pretty weak. I mean, when you work in IT, management never listens to you. So for everyone else out there, take this as a lesson learned. Learn from this administrator. Don't do anything crazy or stupid if you don't get your way. Seven years of your life spent in prison, it's not worth it. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. I saw that Microsoft shared a YouTube video in their mechanics series on how to set up Microsoft Authenticator, Windows Hello, or FIDO2 keys in Azure AD Admin Center. So that's a useful one to have. The awesome Jen Gentleman had a series of useful tips on Twitter again this week, including that if you hit Control, Shift, and T together, just after you close the tab in Edge, it will restore that closed tab. She also shared a Power Toys utility that does batch renaming of files. So that's very useful to have. Also useful for those with home labs where you're using Unify appliances, Dave Stork blogged on Ubiquiti, UID, and Microsoft 365 and setting up single sign-on with these solutions integrated for your VPN. Poweronplatforms.com published a follow-up to an MMS 2022 session on tips and tricks that included some interesting information on AppLocker via Microsoft Defender for Endpoint with Power BI. 
So essentially using Power BI with these solutions for security visibility in your organization. And speaking of Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, Jeffrey Apple has shared his ultimate blog series on Microsoft Defender for Endpoint for Windows. So check that out. My good buddy, the awesome Trenton Tai, posted a couple of blog posts recently around optimizing and automating Azure virtual desktops. So if that's a space you're in, check out Trenton's blogs. He's a wealth of knowledge. Cloud28plus.com had a useful blog this week on some do's and don'ts around monitoring databases. I find databases to be pretty interesting because you can't necessarily handle them just like any other typical server just for the way they work. So this is a pretty useful one to have. Trevor Jones shared a really cool looking community tool that he created that is a script viewer for Microsoft Endpoint Manager. So it looks like a really useful way to parse through scripts for MEM. And finally, Peter Egerton published a blog post around Azure AD groups for autopilot devices around using Azure AD groups for targeting autopilot devices, but excluding specific group tags. So if you want to get granular with how you're targeting devices, check out Peter's great blog. So I'm looking at the elapsed time on this recording. It's right about 40 minutes, which would make it the longest episode I've ever done if it ends up being that way after I edit this. I apologize for the scripts, tricks, and tips. I went a little bit quicker and just hit bullet points for each because I was aware that it's been about nine days since I recorded an episode and there's just a whole lot of information to get through. I even cut out a few stories already and I'm sure I'll probably cut more out when editing. But regardless, I hope to be back into my regular cadence of episodes. Apologies if the audio is not great this week. My voice is a little bit strained, but I'm hoping to be back to normal in terms of the podcast again. So thank you all so much for listening. And as always, thank you all so much for supporting the podcast.